You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are joining us from. My name is Scott Worden, and I am the director of the Afghanistan program here at the United States Institute of Peace. USIP is thrilled to be coasting today with our friends from the World Bank, a timely discussion about Afghanistan's economic indicators and the future situation. We are going to be focusing on two recent reports that the World Bank has published on the current economic situation, and I'd like to thank all of our esteemed panelists for joining us to give their reactions to it, interpretations, and provide context. We invite both our in-person and our virtual audience to engage with us and with each other uh, on Twitter throughout the event using today's hashtag, hashtag USIPAfghanistan, all one word. We also invite all of you to take part in today's discussion. For those online, please submit your questions using the chat box function located just below the video player on the USIP event page. For those here in the room, uh, my colleagues will pass out index cards to write your questions on. They will come around and grab them periodically through the discussion uh, and then distribute them to Bill Bird, who will be moderating this discussion. We'll select several questions from among them, depending on the time we have. As many of you know, USIP was created by the US Congress in 1984 as a nonpartisan institute to prevent, mitigate, and resolve violent conflict abroad. We've been engaged in Afghanistan since 2002. We had an office there from 2008 uh, until the Taliban takeover in 2021. But we remain actively engaged with Afghan civil society partners, uh, with those in the region, with those in the diaspora, and those that are exiled, to try to move toward uh, a more stable, a more inclusive peace. Uh, and that includes uh, not just a functioning economy, but one that respects the rights of all Afghans, including women. We have lots of programs that are aimed at both dialogue, research, and training to achieve these goals. I want to just acknowledge, and we'll hear in much more detail from our panelists, uh, that the two years since the Taliban have taken over have seen a drastic decline uh, in the economic fortunes of Afghanistan. Uh, there are some good signs, I would say, from, from the analysis that, that the panelists have collectively done uh, in terms of corruption and other technical management issues. But if we look at these reports, the overall numbers, while maybe stabilizing, show that Afghanistan's fortunes have declined significantly in economic terms. We'll be looking at the Afghanistan Development Update and the Afghanistan Welfare Monitoring Survey to explore that in great detail and see where the trends are heading. We are pleased to have two of the report authors here today, Sylvia Radeli and Mohammed Wahid, to summarize the report's key findings. They will then join the discussion with Nahid Sarabi, Khalid Payanda, Paul Fishstein, and our moderator, Bill Byrd. Uh, we'll provide more introductions uh, after this. First, it is my pleasure to introduce Eduardo Olabiera from the World Bank, who will provide who will provide opening remarks. He is currently the program leader for equitable growth finance and institutions for Afghanistan with the World Bank, having previously served as a senior economist at the office of the World Bank's chief economist. And he's also worked in uh, the Inter-American Development Bank and the Central Bank of Chile. So Eduardo, the floor is yours. Well, thank you, Scott, and uh, good morning to everyone here in, in D.C. Uh, good afternoon and uh, good evening to those connected uh, online. 
It's a pleasure to be here uh, hosting uh, this uh, event. Uh, and, and thank you to Scott and Yusip uh, for, uh, for hosting us and having us here. Um, it's a, a great uh, collaboration that I hope it continues uh, for many years. What, um, as Scott said, Silvia and Wahid will be presenting uh, two uh, reports that uh, we just uh, published last month, the Afghanistan Development Update and the Afghanistan Welfare Monitoring Survey. So Silvia, uh, our um, senior uh, poverty economist, will go first, and then Wahid will continue on the, on the macro side. These two reports are part of the Afghanistan, Afghanistan uh, Futures, which is a collection of uh, of analytical work that we publish uh, often together with the economic monitoring and the private sector survey, the gender survey, and, and other sector analysis that we regularly produce uh, for Afghanistan that I think it's uh, very useful to inform dialogues like, like the one we're going to have today. So I, I want to thank all the panelists uh, here today for agreeing to participate. We're looking forward for a very engaging and interesting uh, discussion. And then, I, as I said before, again, thank you, Scott, for having us. I also want to thank our management and our country director for all the support in producing uh, these reports. With that, I leave you with the panelists, and I thank uh, Bill, and, and also special thanks to Bill, who has been a, a big driving force uh, for, for this event, and he will be uh, the moderator of, of the entire panel. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed. Thank you very much, Eduardo. I pushed the wrong button. I'm an economist, so please keep that in mind. But uh, thank you very much, Eduardo, and also Scott, for, for your remarks. It's my pleasure to introduce and moderate this distinguished panel uh, to discuss two important World Bank reports, what they tell us about the situation in Afghanistan and their implications for policy. In the order in which they will speak, uh, the first uh, panelist will be Sylvia Redelli. Redelli, I hope it's reasonably okay. And she's been in, uh, in the World Bank since 2008 and is currently a senior economist working on poverty and equity, uh, in the global poverty and equity practice. and. She's worked extensively on issues related to poverty, uh, gender, labor market, conflict, and, and uh, fragility in, in a variety of countries, including Afghanistan, of course. Uh, Mohammed Wahid, uh, and she will be talking about the household survey that the World Bank recently, the third round of it that they recently uh, put, put out. Mohammed Wahid is a senior country economist working in the macroeconomics, trade, and investment global practice. And, uh, but by the way, I think these people working in global practice are actually working on Afghanistan. So it's a little different. The, the old system was you had more, more regional and, and country-based approaches. Now it's a little more uh, centralized, I guess. And he's done a lot of work on fiscal management, sustainability, and domestic resource mobilization. And I think he's not only been responsible for this update, but also for the uh, monthly monitor reports, which uh, I think a lot of people find very useful for the up-to-the-minute uh, data. Then to my left, the, the three other panelists include uh, Khalid Poenda, who's a co-director at the Institute of Development and Economic Affairs, IDEA, and he previously served in a number of positions 
earlier at the World Bank when he was my colleague, but also then in the Ministry of Finance. And his most recent job there was acting Minister of Finance during the difficult days of 2021. And Paul Fishstein is an, uh, currently a non-resident fellow at the New York University's Center for, on International Cooperation, and he focuses on economic and humanitarian issues. Uh, he has a long background on Afghanistan, and I think, but I'm not sure, but uh, we, it's possible we met in, or overlapped at least in the 1970s working on Afghanistan. So he's, he's got uh, a lot of the background, and. Uh, and uh, uh, contextual knowledge. And uh, last but certainly not least, Naid Sarabi is uh, a co-director at the Institute of Development and Economic Affairs, and she previously served as Deputy Minister for Policy at the Ministry of Finance, as well as many other positions uh, in, the, in the 2000s and 2010s. So uh, in terms of process, as Scott said, uh, uh, we'll start with a brief summaries of the two reports, uh, about 10 minutes each, and then we'll go to a round of questions that I will ask the other panelists and then follow up questions for all panelists. And then depending how that proceeds, we'll open it up to questions from the audience. As Scott said, the online audience can raise questions in the uh, chat box. And, and uh, in-person audience, please uh, just write a question on uh, three by five cards and we'll try to answer as many as we can in the time available. So uh, Sylvia, I mean, I mean, we're starting with you because the Afghanistan's economic problems directly affect people. And you've been working on the household survey for quite some time, including the earlier rounds of that. And, and I think the welfare monitoring surveys are uh, an invaluable and actually, in the Afghan context, uh, perhaps more reliable than many other sources of information about what's happening at the level of Afghan households and their members. So, Sylvia, what does the latest AWMS tell us? What are your key takeaways and concerns? Thank you. Thank you very much, Bill. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. So as, as Bill mentioned, we will start with some findings of the Afghanistan Welfare Monitoring Survey. So when we talk about welfare monitoring, we need to remember that in Afghanistan there was a well-established system for measuring poverty, monitoring labor market outcomes, and welfare of households. So in the in the graph that you see on on on, on the on the screen, uh, we had uh, like the last three rounds of the nationally representative survey that was conducted by the statistical organization of the country. The, the one was conducted in 2016-17. Following one was done between October 2019 and September 2020, so the income expenditure and labor force survey of 1920. And then a partial one was started in June 21, and then it was suspended because of the deteriorating security situation and, of course, the dramatic events of August. Uh, 21. After that, uh, we were in a situation in which it was not possible to collect data in the field, so we basically relied on the phone numbers that were collected in the last two uh, income and expenditure labor force surveys. 
And we basically uh, decided to conduct a rapid phone service just to collect some information, some proxy indicators for, uh, for welfare. So the first round was conducted uh, between in the fall of 21, so immediately after the Taliban takeover, so that was the round one. The second uh, survey was conducted in the summer of 22, and the third round was conducted in the spring of 23, so that's the most recent round of the welfare monitoring survey. So in terms of household welfare, an indicator that has been consistently collected over the three rounds is self-reported welfare. So how households report on their own welfare, whether they have enough income to satisfy their basic needs, their basic needs. And what we see is that from the fall of 21 to the spring of 23, there has been some improvement in the, in the self-reported welfare. So in terms of the capacity of households to satisf satisfy their basic needs with the income at hand. However, and, and, and this is what we have been uh, uh, doing of, with the round three of the survey. If we look at the monetary poverty, uh, and we did some work to project monetary poverty and its evolution between the baseline of the spring of 20, uh, 2020 and the spring of 2023, we see that in terms of monetary poverty, we still have half of the population that in 2023 is uh, consuming below the poverty line, which is pretty much the same level, the same order of magnitude of what we have in 2020. And, and remember that the spring of 2020 was characterized by the start of the COVID pandemic, which had a massive impact in, in urban areas of, of Afghanistan. And, uh, and uh, uh, in 2020, the conflict in the country was particularly severe. So basically what we see currently is that despite conflict ceasing, we still have half of the population that is poor, and we don't see any, uh, any drivers of poverty reduction moving forward. Another element I would like you to bring attention to is the different trends between urban and rural areas. Urban areas prior to the Taliban takeover were really Really the driver, the service, the service economy was the, the driver of, of growth in the country. Now we have stagnating poverty in urban area. The difference is not statistically significant. I will give some like nerdy um, comments here and there, but basically po urban poverty has remained more or less the same pre and post Taliban takeover. We do have a decline in rural poverty, but we do not know how sustainable that will be moving forward because what we know from prior uh, the last 20, uh, 20 years, more or less, is that uh, urban, rural poverty is very volatile, and it really depends on the realization of weather. We know how uh, climate change is currently impacting the country. So we do not have drivers of poverty reduction, and the realization of rural poverty is really conditional on, uh, on, uh, um, on circumstances that might vary over time. Okay, so these are the, the main concerns that we have in terms of welfare. Now, how did uh, household cope uh, with the uh, contracting economic environment in the country? So basically, they rely on the only asset that Afghan household had, which is labor. Of course, what we see, and it's quite dramatic, an increase, a structural increase in labor force participation compared to what it was prior to the Taliban takeover. There are more women and more youth that are entering the labor market to look for economic activity and employment opportunity. 
women, it's, it's important to note here, is that the, the fact that more women are like trying to do economic activity to support the livelihood of their household doesn't mean that they are uh, working in formal jobs in the labor market. They are mostly engaged in economic activities, home-based production, mostly in, in manufacturing. However, what we really see from the indicators in the labor market is that the challenges that we knew existing in the Afghan labor market, that of very fast population growth, half a million labor market entrants every year, have been further uh, aggravated by the fact that now more people are looking for jobs just to support livelihood. We have a doubling of unemployment and also underemployment. The quality of jobs available on the market has declined, as we can see from a deteriorating of uh, underemployment as well. Now, we, we mentioned that uh, um, we don't see drivers of poverty reduction moving forward. Of course, one of the drivers is human capital of the country. If we look at human capital, we have, uh, in terms of uh, uh, education, and we are uh, measuring uh, school attendance here, we do see some pov positive development in terms of primary school attendance particularly for girls in rural areas. So this is really the no-conflict dividend. In, uh, from, uh, from survey conducted prior to the Taliban takeover, uh, the first reason for parents not sending children to school was uh, the security situation. Now the first reason is lack of access. Okay? We see that girls in rural areas have benefited the most from the improvement of the security situation. And this has led to a decline in the gender gap in primary school attendance and also the closing of the rural to urban gap. So we know that rural areas were particularly affected uh, by worse uh, um, uh, outcomes in terms of education. So we do have some pov positive signs on primary education. On secondary education, this is really where we see the challenges moving forward. Of course, there is the dramatic impact of the ban on uh, uh, female secondary school attendance. And, and we see in the spring of, of 23 is with, the, with this last school year is that when the, when the ban really came fully, uh, fully uh, enforced, we see that only 3% of girls aged 13 to 18 are currently attending secondary school. This is dramatic, and it's a dramatic decline to what we uh, saw in 2019-20, uh, even during COVID. So we st still had like... 17% of girls in, like in rural areas going, going to secondary school now, it's, it's basically gone. And the other thing that is particularly challenging is also on the, on the, on the boys' side. So amongst boys uh, 13 to 18, what we see is that there has not been any change or any improvement in secondary school attendance. And this is related to the fact that now the young boys have to work to support their families. So we had talked earlier about the deteriorating economic condition in the country. So now there is a challenge of uh, uh, secondary school age boys that need to work to support their families and they are not going to school. So we are in a situation in which the human capital outlook for the country does not look so bright. And, and this is an understatement, if you want to say. So really, um, so as, as Bill was mentioning earlier, we do have some positive signs. Like, for example, primary school education. There is something happening there. 
And we do have some very negative side on the secondary school education. In terms of welfare, we see some improvement compared to the very dramatic situation in the aftermath of the Taliban takeover with the, with the collapse of the economy. Uh, we, we know that the inflows of, of aid uh, contributed to the stabilization of the economy in summer 22, and Wahid will provide more details on that. We know that remittances have also helped stabilizing the economy and uh, helping household weathering the crisis, but we really do not see any drivers, sustainable drivers of poverty reduction moving forward. So it's a very fragile uh, situation. And I will now leave the floor uh, to Thank Wahid. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Sylvia. And I think you make very good points. And if I remember correctly from the report, the number of people who are, uh, don't have enough even for food is quite high. So even there, there was some improvement Overall, it's the, the what we would have called in the old jargon the extreme poor may not have uh, reduced uh, much at all, if any. Uh, so over to you, Wahid. Uh, how does this situation look in from the macroeconomic perspective? Uh, no, thank you, Scott uh, and uh, Bill, um, and thank you USIP for inviting us. I think I take it uh, where Sylvia left the. Welfare, there is some improvement in welfare, but overall economic situation is, uh, it has stabilized around a new low-level equilibrium, but it is not very optimistic going forward. Uh, and I'll explain going forward uh, in the next slides. The fact is, the as we all understood that after the crisis, after the change in the regime, the economics, the, the the, f the, the government simply um, closed down the grant flows which were basically running the government. The whole economy of one economy for the last two decades was designed around grant flows. And s sudden closure of those flows has basically shut down lots of things. Government stopped vendor payments, public servants were not paid. Um, and of course the border were closed and sort of things. So there was a significant demand shock, um, downward adjustment in the aggregate demand. And that should have actually put lots of pressure, downward pressure on inflation. But in reality what we saw that inflation after the crisis went up because simultaneously there was a significant aggregate supply shock as well because the border closures, the financial system was disrupted. Um, and you know there was lots of uncertainty and sort of things. So immediately, I think what we noticed afterward that since the arrival of UN cash shipment in December of 2021, things gradually started improving. And some of the indicators which were just falling like stones, they started stabilizing at a low level equilibrium in the summer of 2022. Um, we noticed that the trade has started, we, uh, the exports started, imports were happening, um, the Taliban were able to actually successfully restarted collecting revenues from the borders and um, they were, um, so in that sense the some, there was some stability in the system, um, but that stability remained very fragile because the economy was, needs to go through a st structural change. And unfortunately, for that structural change to happen, 
it probably requires some support, and that support is not there. The private sector is struggling big time. Many firms basically were closed. Lots of firms which were operating, they laid off lots of workers. And the biggest concern that firms basically explained during the private sector surveys that World Bank conducted were that they don't have the demand for their goods and services. And that was the consistent messages in three rounds of surveys. So this is, and then so this, this clearly indicates that the aggregate demand was very low, and the country did not have the kind of uh, instrument that can help it in terms of stimulating the aggregate demand. It doesn't have the fiscal policy because it doesn't have the active debt market where the government can borrow and can start spending. Monetary policy was ineffective because the central bank is dysfunctional, sort of. Um, so the, what we are looking at, um, we were looking at, at at the end of 2022 was an economy where the, there was a, a new equilibrium, much lower um, than the previous years. Economy basically in last two, 2021 and 2022 shrank by 25%. It was $20 billion economy, now it is $15 billion economy. And we were, at that time we were thinking maybe that equilibrium will carry on for some time. But this, since the beginning of this year, what we have noticed that this prices, which inflation which peaked in July of 2022 at 18.2%, .2 started gradually, this inflation started, prices started going down. But since the April of this year, the, we are, what we are looking at is a deflation. And deflation, not at a very small level, close to double-digit deflation consistently for last seven, eight months. So this is a big concern. That, that clearly shows that the economy is still basically adjusting to the new reality, still adjusting to a new structure where the aggregate demand is much lower. And the, the, there is no instrument available actually to prop up that aggregate demand. So that is, that is a big concern. So because that basically tells us that if deflation continues, initially, of course, it has helped people in terms of increasing their purchasing power. That may have reflected in some of the improvement in the Afghanistan uh, Welfare Monitoring Survey, probably. But if it continues, then firms will continue to start lay laying off workers. They will start closing the businesses because and that is a perpetual cycle. And it's very difficult to actually come out of that cycle without a, having any instrument at hand. So this is a kind of uh, negative outlook that uh, I just wanted to raise here. On the something which were working also depends on the outlook going forward. Revenue collection was happening. Taliban were able to collect $2.2 billion last year, 2022, um, fiscal year 2022. Um, this was comparable to 2019 numbers, um, but remember in 2019 GDP size was close to $19 billion, now it was $15 billion. So as a percent of GDP, Taliban collected more. And perhaps it was because of inefficiency at the border and less corruption that was reflected in some of the surveys that were conducted by bank as well as the organization as well. And But the problem is the almost 60% of the revenues are coming from border taxes. And that relies, that heavily depends on the volume of imports. 
and volume of imports are is impo important indicator because all other indicators in the economy were telling us that the economy is shrinking, it's smaller, um, but the imports remained very strong during 2022 and even in 2023. In 2023, for the f I think for the first nine months, imports grew by 32%. And that was the puzzle actually we were. And when we were looking at the current account deficit into 2022 and 2023, we noticed that there is a significant current account deficit which cannot, we, 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 never, we didn't know actually where it was being financed actually. So we, that was a puzzle for us. But then we started looking at these import numbers and we noticed that some of the imports just, just spiked. And those imports are, for example, textile, raw material, chemicals, tires, vehicle parts confectionery items, chocolates, and sort of thing, which does not actually, you know, tie up well with the very depressed economy. And then we looked, start looking, started looking at the origin of those imports. Everything originated from UAE. And that basically then we, anecdotal evidence basically suggests that these are imports for Pakistani market, financed by Pakistani entrepreneurs through Avant Transit trade using Avant parties. So that basically, if we adjust for those 1.2 to 1.5 billion dollars, then what we were thinking that there was a current account deficit of 1.6, 1.7 billion dollar and exchange rate is appreciating, that sort of puzzle is explained that that um, you know, the 1.5 billion dollar, close to 1.5 billion dollar imports were financed from the outside the country and not part of the one foreign exchange market. So. But the negative side of it, that Taliban basically received, collected business receipt tax and customs duties on the one transit trade. And those were the imports for Pakistan. And now Pakistan bans, bans some of those items from being imported through a one transit trade. If that ban is imposed, then the revenue collection at the border will go down going forward. So this year, for 2023, authorities have budgeted 210 billion dollars of one, which is close to, I mean, in dollar terms, it's difficult to say because dollar is one and uh, is changing every day. But it's 210 billion Fs, and we don't think that it will happen. It will. Our estimate is that they will be able to collect only close to 190 to one to 200 billion at best, and that it does not bode well because in a public sector, which used to be um, on budget, $5.2 billion. Now it is, last year it was $2.2 billion, and that is a significant um, reason for the contraction in, in aggregate demand. There was $5.6 billion, uh, used to be $5.6 billion off budget in 2019-20, and now off budget is 3.8, and almost 80% uh, of it is humanitarian which is mostly procured outside the country. So it doesn't add much to the one economy. And that's the problem, actually. That's, and third factor, which is important to note, is that the ban on poppy cultivation also can explain some of the downside um, risks that uh, the one economy will actually have to bear, because UN ODC report published a few days ago uh, shows that the loss of income for a one poppy farmer is about $1 billion. 
and one million dollar in an economy of 15 billion dollar is significant amount so that also reflect the kind of deflation we are looking at so going forward with the fall in decline in the grants with the climate risk uh, earthquakes that we are looking at and the lack of policy instrument at at hand i think the outlook for the afghan economy is very poor i'll hand it over to you Thank you very much. I think there's some really interesting and important puzzles which the World Bank report tries to address, uh, data puzzles. Uh, just to add on all that, the data problems are, are manifest. Even they were there before 2021, and they're in many ways even worse now, as, as I think both the reports indicate. Uh, so uh, Khalid. I mean, you've served in uh, numerous senior positions, including uh, the top position in the Ministry of Finance. Based on your experience and, and your uh, knowledge of economic management, what are the key macroeconomic policies issues currently, and uh, how can other countries and international agencies help ameliorate uh, what are clearly very serious problems? Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, first of all, thank you to USIP and the World Bank for this timely discussion and the World Bank's uh, updates and, and uh, monthly monitoring that provides some insight to the end to the economy despite a very difficult situation when it comes to access and reliability of information. Uh, uh, most of what I wanted to, to say have been said more eloquently by uh, Sylvia and, and, and Wahid, but just uh, a, a few examples and, and, and points that may be repetitive but important to uh, uh, to mention. First of all, as I said, you know, lack of uh, transparency and access to information makes it really difficult to, to see a, a, a full picture. And uh, but still, given this, uh, some of the issues that I that I see, you know, first of all on, on Taliban's uh, Part there, it does not seem to be any macroeconomic strategy or economic strategy. And there has been a lot of rhetoric, but nothing credible on the ground that would help what they uh, uh, have uh, stated about uh, private sector-driven economic uh, growth. Uh, international assistance, as, as Sylvia and Wahid have, have mentioned, have drastically reduced in size, but have also been now different in nature. It's from uh, development assistance to humanitarian that has very limited uh, economic impact. Uh, so that has what used to be a, a driver of growth or poverty reduction has, has uh, over the last 20 years has suddenly disappeared, which, which has created a lot of problems, as Sylvia mentioned, in the service, but also other uh, sectors that employed a lot, of, a lot of people, including construction, and, and uh, especially in urban, uh, urban areas. So jobs have been impacted, uh, there's poverty lev levels have been uh, increased. Uh, financial and uh, fiscal sectors have, have had their issues. Uh, on the financial sector, the freeze on on the assets, but but also the subsequent uh, withdrawal limits set to to manage uh, run on the banks has meant that people cannot 
access the meager uh, uh, savings that they have in their bank accounts up to a certain level. That has really impacted the uh, the, the environment. On on the fiscal, I think uh, Wahid's spoken in very much detail, and I agree with all the points. You know that the situation remains very fragile. On the develop uh, on the expenditure side, there is no visibility where the money goes into. Uh, there are no reports on budget expenditures beyond just headline numbers provided by by Taliban. But on the revenue generation, uh, which has was seen as an as a initial success by by so many people of uh, uh, Taliban generating a lot of revenues, I think it's not as much as actual improvement, but you know, a formalization of the revenues that they used to uh, collect uh, uh, illegally over the last 20 years and bringing it into into the uh, government coffers now. And and as you see, you know that that has uh, uh, run out of steam. Uh, the issue with revenues is that it's most of it is dependent on only one item, you know, coal exports to Pakistan, which has uh, is not a great uh, diverse strategy when it comes to uh, to creating sustainable revenues. On uh, just to you know uh, overall uh, overview of the environment, I, I think one of the key headlines that I take away from this is that the unsuccessful political resolutions that do not lead to uh, improvements in business and consumer confidence. Uh, we have to look at all of this in that, that con context. Even physical security that has improved hasn't really meant anything substantial for uh, consumers, but also for, for business people. There are targeted kidnappings and extortions for, uh, to uh, get get money from from those, so it really does not that does not help the the overall uh, situation. What can be done? I think is a very difficult question to to answer given the environment. But I think it's not part of the uh, the answer. Have to be Taliban. You you can't find any solution where international community could do something without Taliban's. Acknowledgement and active participation in their role as rulers, whether we like them or not, you know they have to uh, to have um, uh, a role in in all of this. Um, uh, but still, for for international uh, communities' engagement, I think for when when it comes to economic management, IMF and the World Bank have key roles to to play. Uh, I think leaving. Uh, overall, everything, including economic management and surveillance, to UN uh, is is not a uh, a great uh, uh, approach. You know, they have their advantages in some areas, but you know, there are key skills that IMF brings to the table and the World Bank brings to the table. And I'm glad that IMF has a new mission chief for Afghanistan, who's who's among us today. That uh, hopefully. There are more more engagements on 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 this. Uh, so right now there is 
what whatever aid goes into Afghanistan, you know, unfortunately, is not tied to a bigger macroeconomic picture that that is guided by data and analysis by the World Bank. Um, I think in ensuring accountability to the uh, affected populations is 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 important. And absence of a recognized government, uh, civil society that that does not exist in Afghanistan, there still have to be mechanisms found where. There is accountability to them on where the the money goes uh, in, in Afghanistan, but also to the donors as well. Uh, uh, agreeing to to terms of aid and ensuring sustainability is is important. You know, we've we've seen that Afghanistan is still heavily dependent on aid, and and some sort of predictability is 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 important. And and. Um, as I said, you know earlier, it, it it takes two to tango, you know, and Taliban have to have uh, a role in this and and a and a positive one uh, to to engage. Engagement with Taliban does not mean a recognition, you know, it's it's a but it's a recognition of the fact that they are de facto's there and they have to be part of the solution if if the uh, poverty situation in any way could be improved. Thank you. Thank you, Khaled. Uh, very useful comments. I think two, one takeaway for me is that uh, the some of the improvements that the Taliban have made in revenue and in other areas, border controls, uh, these kinds of things, give a one-time fill-up or stabilization. They're not, as uh, Wahid was saying, these are not drivers for growth or for poverty reduction. And so they, they've gotten some one-time benefits, and now they're running into problems. And I couldn't agree more about engagement, uh, non, not necessarily financial. Uh, and uh, you know you have a, a problematic system where the UN humanitarian aid is driving the macroeconomic situation. Yet, I think, as Khaled rightly said, you really need the World Bank and the IMF to be involved on the macroeconomic side and how to, how to kind of uh, manage or, uh, or address those kinds of issues, which you know, with, uh, the humanitarian side understandably is not uh, equipped to deal with. So I think those are very good points. So Paul, you've had a lot of experience in Afghanistan, and uh, I thought maybe you could take up some of the structural and sectoral issues facing the economy. Are there prospects where uh, some sectors can provide more jobs? Uh, and uh, you may want to also touch on something which the reports didn't uh, address because it was before that uh, it was it happened after they came out but the forced deportation of Afghans I think uh, makes everything that Sylvia and Wahid ta was talking about uh, much worse so so regional policies are actually also contributing to problems you may want to touch that and and then if you want to say anything further about the donors beyond what Khaled already said, you're more than welcome to. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. That's a lot um, to avoid getting red carded here. Um, the disadvantage of going after four or five articulate speakers is many of my points have already been made, but let me try to hit on some other ones or some to reiterate and underline them. In terms of sectoral and structural issues, uh, let me mention four of them. 
One of them is the financial sector and banking, which has been very well, very widely acknowledged. Everyone knows about that. Um, but it also seems that the constraints on individual businesses and households really depends on the scale. You talk to very small businesses who are managing to conduct their affairs through the Hawala system. Um, this is not sufficient, obviously, for larger enterprises or for trade financing, but for small businesses, they seem to be get, some of them seem to be getting by under Hawala. Of course, the authorities seem to be trying to bring Hawala under the formal sector, which I think is something the Republic tried as well, and um, we'll see how that goes. Um, there's also, in the f related to finance, there's been some discussion about some of the private, the frozen private commercial assets being returned to individual commercial banks under supervision. I mean, this is kind of rumors that are circulating. This, these are not the government, the Afghanistan bank reserves, but the private ones. I think they're about 900 million. And so if those are returned, that, that could help to um, boost the economy in some ways. Um, depending on who you talk to, the transition to Islamic banking is either going really well or it's creating chaos. I think um, the World Bank report referred to it as misguided. So um, I'm not sure about that. And then as Bill referred to, there's a, another concern related to the deportations going on from Pakistan. The Afghanistan um, ACCI, the Chamber of Commerce and Industry, has expressed concerns about assets potentially being stranded in Pakistan, particularly if the finance sector and banking is not working. There is certainly a possibility that some of those assets could be stranded there. So that's one, the financial sector. External markets and trade, uh, some of the speakers, um, I think Waheed talked quite a bit about coal. Um, as Khalid mentioned, despite the fact that there is no overall macroeconomic strategy, the Taliban seem to be continuing this emphasis on export-led growth, a, a trading economy. Um, again, con continuing what the Republic's focus was. Increasing exports has always been a work in progress. Um, the question of coal is quite interesting. 2022 was really a, a banner year for coal. You had supply chain disruptions post-COVID. Um, international prices were very high, so the Taliban were able to take advantage of that and export an immense amount of coal to Pakistan. I think of the coal exports, 99% of it went to Pakistan. So clearly it was staying in the neighborhood. Um, that has not been sustainable. Uh, I think um, coal is down, exports are down 12%. Um, and so maybe the coal bubble has burst and that does not seem like a reliable um, source of income in the future. Also in terms of management, it appears that I think the the authorities put a, when they saw how much coal was going out and how much of a revenue source that might be, I believe they um, imposed some taxes, some export taxes on it. And that certainly didn't help to keep it competitive with international prices, particularly after prices stabilized. The third point um, is about domestic demand. And some of the other speakers have, have talked about that. Household purchasing power is, is now at a low. 
with so much of the foreign funding, foreign assistance going to humanitarian assistance, it doesn't have the multiplier that development funding has. Um, and in terms of domestic demand, um, surveys have shown that lack of domestic demand is really the number one constraint. I think it was the, um, the private sector rapid survey mentioned that the, the number one um, constraint on economic activity was lack of demand, followed um, by uncertainty and the banking system. So, um, and the last one related to that is about the, the labor market and the need to create jobs. And that comes through very strongly in both reports. And again, that's even before the forced repatriation of whatever percentage of 1.7 million Afghans from Pakistan. <laughs> Um, I think Sylvia mentioned the participation of women in the labor force um, increased by three times, I think, according to the report, which may not be a, a good, th an unmitigated good thing. Similarly with youth, people are just poor, they need to find jobs, and they're entering the labor force. The report also talks about unemployment, but I think the report, or underemployment, the report mainly refers to people who are not able to get full-time jobs or jobs that will, will support livelihoods. But there's also the question of underemployment with respect to quality of jobs. And given the collapse of many of the, of the withdrawal of, of development funding, a lot of the technical positions, the, the white collar or um, I guess white collar posi professional positions have now been eliminated and so you have um, doctors and lawyers and um, engineers doing whatever they can in the labor market. And so that, that's uh, a problem. And then finally on the labor market, regional migration, which has always been a little bit of a safety valve for Afghanistan, is not for the foreseeable future going to be an option. Um, do you want me to talk quickly about the, some of the things? Uh, maybe we'll hold the uh, aid and donor uh, issues partly for Anahid, but then for the next round of questions, if that's okay. Sure, thanks. So, yellow card. And by the way, the second round, if somebody gets a second yellow card, I don't know in, in <laughs> soccer, in football, what's the uh, thing? So, uh, Nahid, thank you so much for coming. I, you know, um, the last speaker always has difficulties, but I actually think. Uh, there hasn't been that much on the issue of women and households, their welfare and poverty. So I do think, uh, you know, it doesn't look like Taliban restrictions will be eased anytime soon. What do you see as the really serious problems in this area and what can, uh, what can, uh, you know, is, uh, what, how, how can donors allocate limited funds to kind of mitigate the damage, I would call it. I mean, I think we can take as a working assumption the Taliban are not suddenly going to change their policies. So a difficult question, but please go ahead. Thank you so much, Bill, and thank you, USIP and World Bank for convening this um, panel. Uh, first, I want to acknowledge, Bill, that um, just um, at least from my side, there's a lot of appreciation for the World Bank report that the fact that it has been more comprehensive than the earlier ones. So as we go ahead, there has been a lot of improvement in the way issues have been covered. So um, really welcome that. Um, but at the beginning, I'd also um, 
pay attention to some of the nuances that could affect the report and the fact that some people have reported um, improved condition. Um, um, let's keep in mind that when you do phone surveys, you're already um, you're contacting those who are already comparatively well off than many other people who do not have access to phone, or even the fact that they do not have the financial means to have credit cards in their phone. So um, um, maybe th that could be one of one of the observations. Um, the second issue is also acknowledging the. Um, agroecology of Afghanistan is that different parts of Afghanistan have different seasonalities, different, different conditions, crops, and uh, topography. There's a lot of variation in the rain-fed villages versus the one that is ir uh, normally irrigated. There are villages that, have, that were comparatively supportive to the Taliban, and now they are treated well in terms of access to aid, ethnicity, ethnic divisions, play um, quite a bit role in the way you access aid and financial resources. Um, so these all have some kind of effects and impacts as we, um, uh, we have been um, hearing um, from, uh, from Afghanistan. Um, I wish we could have more gender disaggregated data on poverty and um, from what we hear in anecdotal evidences is uh, feminization of poverty is a fact in Afghanistan, and it is getting worse and worse. Um, the, um, it is not the restrictive policies of the Taliban that affect poverty and women's activities, but there have been reports that in villages and rural areas, people actually self-police because of fear, because of um, um, the environment that has been created. Women do go to get, for example, water, they go to access health, but not to the extent that were prevalent before. Again, um, anecdotal evidences, um, and I know how difficult it is to, to, um, to collect um, evidences um, in Afghanistan at this point. There have been um, um, some, some mentions in the report, um, uh, and also, um, I think other panelists have, have talked about it, that women's mobility is constrained, which affects their uh, participation in other sectors of the economy, uh, in particular agriculture, which, which was one of the main findings of the report, and more towards manufacturing activities, which is in, inside the house. So what happens is that all those activities are highly um, underpaid, less productive, and they require more hours but less productivity. And that affects the overall um, picture um, and how women are, have been underpaid. Um, and another issue that, um, that surrounds this sector, especially manufacturing and in-house uh, employment, is, as, as mentioned earlier, lack of demand and limited uh, liquidity in rural areas. Um, means women, women's products are um, less likely to find demand even in, um, in urban, in both urban and rural areas. Um, so some of the suggestions, maybe yeah, uh, when you look at women's livelihoods and economic situation, you can't really um, alienate it from the overall economic picture. But again, um, what has been at least some of the um, 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 some of the notes. Um, while we have to emphasize on health, and again, in terms of access to health, um, there's a lot of limitation 
on family planning, and we have been hearing a lot of concerns over access of women to birth controls. This wasn't an easy area even during Republic, but right now it, it has been more and more um, uh, restricting. Um, there has to be a shift in um, for more livelihood-related um, interventions from the donor community. I know there is limited um, funding even for the humanitarian sector, but even going forward, if you only um, focus on humanitarian and r really ignore the drivers of development, it won't be sustainable. I know there has have been some flexibility towards development lately among the international community, but that, that needs to happen fast. Um, livelihood cannot happen on its um, as, um, as an isolated activity. Of course, um, Paul mentioned that there's, there has to be a linkage to market-driven economy. Um, and, and a plea to the United Nations agencies and international community who are active on the ground, um, uh, maybe there needs to be some flexibility on your procurement rules to connect market and uh, Afghan products in the whole humanitarian aid cycles. Um, there's a need for further coordination among women entrepreneurs, both at urban and rural areas. Um, that has been, a, there has been a big gap because some of the structures that were during the Republic are no more there. Uh, there have been some activities, but again, due to restricting policies and lack of mobility, this has been really an area that, that, that needs focus. Um, my last point, again, as a last speaker, I don't want to repeat um, most of what has been said. I'm a big supporter of cash transfers, especially in these current circumstances. And um, I will tell why the current outlook and the current interventions are a little bit biased towards men. Most of the cash for work projects are really labor intensive, and they're really targeted towards men and youth, especially male youth and um, uh, men. And it's highly challenging for women to, to access even. There have been some modalities as how women can uh, can take part uh, within limited uh, spaces. But again, I think culture um, restrictions and also uh, restrictive policies of Taliban highly influence these interventions. So the streams of, there are two streams of benefit from the cash transfers. First, um, that the very bottom poor that are getting food assistance, in terms of cash, they can pay too many other needs that they have been facing. And the second one, it helps economic activities at the larger scale. And if people tell me the targeting of uh, people through cash transfer is challenging, the same challenge goes to the food transfers. So I'll stop there since I got a yellow card. <laughs> Thank you. As long as people don't get two yellow cards, which is the same as a red card in football, if I remember correctly. But anyway, no. Thank you very much, Nahid. And I think you've put a lot of policy issues on the table, which is really welcome and helpful, because you also put some uh, methodological issues. And I'm, I'll mention one briefly, but I'm not going to ask uh, Sylvia to respond to those, because maybe you can dialogue. But I actually think the phone interview technique may be less biased. Because uh, if you're in a rural area, especially now with the Taliban in charge, having a young Afghan woman call the head of household uh, and asking, you know, what are the women, for example, what are the women in the household doing, may be a better solution than sending some strange man who's a surveyor. And, you know, there's a lot of cultural 
resistance, and not in all ethnic groups, but in some ethnic groups, to even say that the women in the household are working, because that traditionally that was seen as a sign of weakness. And so I, I have to. I, I actually think perhaps the the phone. The problem with the phone interviews, which we will not get into, so I apologize for that. But is is how how do you how how do you expand that base? Because you're you're relying on an old base of phones. But look, Sylvia, look, some of those issues came up, and you may want to respond. But uh, I, I do think uh, may, maybe just start a little bit with how you see the future going with the, these surveys, because uh, how many more can be done by phone before they, it sort of gets way too outdated? Would there be something between sending Taliban surveyors to households and asking how the women are, what they're doing in the household versus what I think might be a fairly good methodology of, of women, Afghan women calling on a phone? And also, I believe they get a small payment. So without getting too much in the weeds, but may, maybe, uh, go for what you think uh, the future is, and also any other points you want to respond to. Thank you, thank you very much. It has been a very, very interesting discussion so far. So quickly on the, on the phone survey and the, the future of, of the phone survey. I think, I think the phone survey was a response to the need to have information during an emergency, right? So now we are in a structurally different situation, right? So the Taliban, as, as Khalid said, are, are here to, to stay for, for the foreseeable future. And there has been already some work done with UNICEF, for example, conducting a full-scale mix in 2022. And for the first time, enumerators were able to go in all parts of the country. So there was no need to replace some primary sampling units because of conflict. For example, we know in 2019-20, I think about 40 districts were not covered in the, in the IELFS because of conflict. So there is a possibility to go in the field. And quite frankly, I don't think NSA will send Taliban to ask uh, questions to, to uh. households. Uh, so I think uh, like the technical people that are in this position have remained the same. They, there is a set of enumerators that have been used. And also in Afghanistan, there has always been a, a couple of enumerators, male and female, going together. Now, there is an issue, of, for example, on labor market. It's a very important issue. There is some work done in Pakistan, for example, showing that if you ask female directly what they do uh, in terms of employment, uh, that you report higher level of female labor force participation exactly for the reason that Bill mentioned, that for the male perspective, having a woman in the household working reflects badly on his capacity to provide for, for the household. So there are many issues to, to be taken into account. So to answer your question, where do we see the future? I think we would love to have the possibility to go in the field and have a proper face-to-face -face survey. We need to have uh, a baseline for, for poverty measurement covering the entire country. We need to have the capacity to have subnational statistics on welfare. We cannot do that given the sample size of our, our phone survey. Uh, we need to do more work also for uh, the indicators that my colleague Wahid and other people use on the macro side. We need to, so we talk about prices declining, but the, the CPI weights are 2016 base. Now things might have changed quite dramatically. So we need to do new weights for the CPI. We need to revise national accounts. So we do need, the, so there are like some questions that are not emergency related. They really require a, a, a different approach to data collection. Um, one point on the, uh, on the feminization of, of poverty, I think, uh, 
I think it's it's very it's it's very important to to mention that right uh, right now we are talking about monetary poverty. So the little numbers that I presented earlier were about monetary poverty, and there are of course also multidimensional issues in terms of poverty that are very important. And here there is really where we do see this issue of uh, of uh, like for example mental well-being or other issues that are affecting. Uh, woman. Um, so, yeah, I will stop here because I, I, I got the yellow card, right? <laughs> uh, actually, that's. Okay, so I'm I can not go a good on. referee. If no. you have one more point, please go ahead. <laughs> Maybe it, no, it's no, not. It's okay, I'll come back later. Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of food for thought. And by, by the way, I see there are a number of questions from the audience, too. So, we'll try to move quickly. Uh, to go toward there, even though I think the discussion in the panel has been quite interesting. So, Wahid, I'll just ask you one question, maybe just particularly for the non-economists here. Why is it so bad that prices are declining and the Afghani is uh, strong uh, in this situation? Obviously, it might not be bad in some other situation. So, maybe just briefly answer that question for, for particularly for non-economists. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Bill. So deflation, actually, what we are observing is the prices are basically in the negative. Inflation is in the negative territory consistently for many months. In the short term, definitely, as a household, I would enjoy. Uh, it increases my purchasing power. Um, but in the long run, actually, from the supply side, firms will basically start feeling stress because this disinflation, deflation is coming from lack of demand. So if demand is going down and the prices are in the gradually falling, the firms will cut down their production and their business activities. They will cut down their jobs further and that will perpetuate another round of austerity from the consumer. Consumer will also stop their procurement decisions now in the hope that in the next week prices will be further decline and I'll go in next month and procure. And that actually add feed into this perpetual cycle of um, and then that basically once you are into this loop it's very hard to get out of it. We have seen global examples and you look at the central bank what exactly they wanted. The biggest fear they have is the deflation actually. They even go to zero interest rates just to avoid that situation as well. Thank you, Wahid. I think this is a very important point. Uh, about two or three years of this would make it similar to the deflation in the U.S. Great Depression, I think, something like that. That's, uh, and uh, it's actually crazy. And I would add, from a policy point of view, the international community, one of the first things they should be doing is seeing their sufficient Afghani banknotes and then talking to the Taliban about managing the currency auctions, right? If they, don't, if they sell less on the currency auction, less foreign currency, it should, uh, it should result in a depre depreciation. I'm, I'm not suggesting wild money creation or hyperinflation or anything, which Afghans fear from, from earlier experience, but it's crazy that the, that the exchange rate went up from something like 90 to about 70, even, even higher than it was when the report was reached. This is, nonsensical, and now maybe that leads me into Khalid. 
because uh, you mentioned that the uh, Taliban. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that didn't come out exactly right. But what I meant was, uh, you had mentioned that Taliban don't have a macroeconomic strategy, and maybe you could elaborate on on that, and perhaps uh, think about what what they could do. What you know, we always talk about what internationals could do. Uh, the Taliban have some instruments, right? They're the strongest government probably in the last 40, 50 years in some ways. They've, they've demonstrated capacity in various, they've benefited from uh, the existing institutions. What could they do differently um, in, in addition to what I was hinting at of, of a more sensible macroeconomic policy? Yeah, sure. Um, given Af Afghanistan's economy, um, the instruments are limited. You know, you don't have a central bank like uh, anywhere else where they have different tools at their disposal. But still, you know, if, uh, I think that on the financial sector, a couple of things that they can do immediately is, first of all, you know, what uh, uh, Paul mentioned about the chaos created by uh, Islamic banking taking over the the, the banking sector, you know, I think a lot of work was done uh, thanks to the IMF and the World Bank in creating, I think, world-class uh, banking regulations, you know, and, and the aftermath of uh, Kabul Bank uh, crisis. Uh, replacing it without uh, thinking deeply into these economic issues uh, from a very narrow religious issues would be uh, uh, Something I, I think that will push the uh, the bank uh, commercial banks that are barely you know uh, alive over the uh, over the edge you know so the 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 first thing they can do uh, the I think uh, a second thing that I would do if I were in, in their places uh, invite international expertise and technical assistance and and the central bank you know. Uh, agreed to to an um, independent audit to make sure that look you know central bank is outside the uh, the Taliban administration, it's run um, uh, purely on economic um, and and you know uh, financial sector regulations that it it should be that that would pave the way for unfreezing of these funds that as as Paul mentioned that part of it a big chunk of it is private money that is that is held on the uh, uh, f uh, f uh, fiscal sector you know accountability and transparency you know Afghanistan had very transparent uh, fiscal data for 20 years you know the best in the region one of the best you know when when you look into um, uh, open budget index and suddenly you know you you cannot get anything on where the money goes, uh, I, I think that, that that's important. While the footprint of the budget is much smaller now, but it still is an important tool at the disposal of Taliban to address some some poverty. You know, uh, um, around half a, a million civil servants that have been gradually been replaced by Taliban uh, foot soldiers uh, still need assistance. You know. I think making regular payments to civil servants uh, on, on their salaries is important. It has been uh, ad hoc and chaotic. You know, paying the pensioners that nobody has talked about. You know, it's it's crucial. You know that that's 
somebody who has served 40 years and then they have no other means of income and they have contributed to their pension and suddenly they are not being paid as, as, an, as an issue. You know? So some of these, these issues on um, private sector development, you know, the issues, uh, some of the mistakes even from the time of the Republic was that we, when we talked about private sector issues, we thought of big if, uh, foreign direct investments and what needs to be done. But there is a big Afghan uh, business community that that is that does not share the same challenges an international say mining company would would face you know their number one hurdle even in the last 20 years probably wasn't security you know uh, uh, on on the on on those terms you know there were bureaucratic red tapes that still exist you know that the number of steps that you have to go to to get a license or Closing a business is a nightmare in Afghanistan, you know. So those those sort of stuff, access to to land, access to electricity, uh, I think those those are some of the things that they could start with. Uh, uh, I, I think these would be my few uh, first things to do. Thank you. Thank you. I think there's a lot of uh, food for thought and uh, policy options and issues that that the panel has raised. Paul, I, I, I'm going to to ask about the uh, donor coordination and what they can do to ameliorate the situation at the margin. So, uh, <coughs> even assuming the Taliban maybe can improve some of their policies, uh, what can be done on the international side? Um, okay, that's an easy one. Um, okay, first. There's what can be done and what will be done. And um, as we know, as we sit here in Washington, the, the politics of Afghanistan are quite intense. And no one wants to be accused of supporting the Taliban. So there's that whole political dimension there. And we could talk about that at length, but I'm not um, going to. But I think we have to realize until and unless there's some kind of change in Taliban social policies, which, as we've all said, is not likely to be coming forthcoming. Um, it's going to be there's going to be a ceiling on what the international community will do, as opposed to what they they can do. Um, so, having said that, there are a couple of specific things. Um, one um, <coughs> is loosening the restrictions on financial flows and networks, and that addresses the the, the banking issues. Um, talking to people about the General License 20, the U.S. General License Number 20, it's expansive, but there's still wariness on the part of regional banks and firms to deal with Afghanistan because it doesn't explicitly say that if you do this, if you trade with Afghanistan or you send money there, you will not be held um, liable at some point. So. They do de-risking. That's been discussed widely. So I think making explicit, and I think there has been some discussion about making some of the allowances under GL20 um, explicit, um, even though technically they're allowed now. So that would be help helpful. I think, Bill, something that you've written about in various places, and um, Nahid alluded to it as well, is shifting the composition of aid to try to get humanitarian assistance, which is less controversial and more likely to be forthcoming, to use that to create demand, to 
promote livelihoods and economic activities. And um, Nahid mentioned cash transfers. I think there seems to be at the international level a recognition that um, I think, as you said, that cash transfers are no more risky, in fact, in some ways are less risky um, than transfers in kind, distributions in kind. And Afghanistan has made great um, progress in some ways in mobile money and, and transfers. So um, using the, the humanitarian assistance in the form of cash transfers and other mechanisms that promote livelihood. Um, also, I think, Bill, as you pointed out before, there's a certain amount of flexibility in the use of humanitarian funds, that they're not strictly, um, there's some, whether it's humanitarian plus or basic human aids, so that can be done. Um, and again, that has to do with uh, purchasing power, creating domestic demand. Um, I think that's... Thank you, Thank you Paul. Uh, sorry, uh, I'm conscious we have some good sure. questions from the group. And so I think, uh, Nahid, I'm going to pose one of them for you. Uh, I'm sure you have views on the aid management system, too, probably at least as severe as uh, Paul's. And I'm, I'm very glad he mentioned about, reinforced your point about cash transfers. There should not be in-kind transfers in Afghanistan, and, and the humanitarian community intellectually has come across very strongly in that regard, but it still doesn't affect the agencies. Uh, so, so it's absolutely ridiculous to be shipping physical goods in, in most cases, not, not in a prolonged emergency like Afghanistan. If, if, of course, if you have an earthquake or something, you need to get goods in quickly, but, but that model is not relevant. So one question that came uh, from the audience, and I think maybe you could uh, uh, elaborate a little bit on it, is are there opportunities for support to women running their own businesses, and could that have, have uh, some help in terms of their economic independence and potentially uh, political and social influence? I think the easiest answer to that is yes, but how do you do that effectively? And I go back to my first, um, uh, to my remarks earlier. Um, when I talk to some women businesses, their, their main problem is lack of demand. They produce. Even access to finances could be dealt in, in medium term, or, or, but where do they sell their products is, is the first question they keep asking me. From a medium enterprise who is functioning in Mazar, who is suing garments, they have issues um, and challenges selling their products and market to the one who's trying to get procurement in Kabul or, or Mazar or elsewhere. Um, it's not that their procurements, uh, uh, their products are of less standard. It's just that the procurement practices in Afghanistan right now with international agencies are too, too biased. Um, and, and it needs to change if you want to um, um, fix the economic situation on the ground. Um, so, so that's 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 uh, um, that's one issue. The other, I think, again, uh, in terms of access to finance, the banking sector um, needs to have needs to be maintained in a way that they have more trust in giving loans. And right now, that's an area where there has been a lot of challenges. Um, so, so I stopped there. But if you wanted, I could go on on aid coordination a little bit too. <laughs> We'll see. Uh, we are beginning to run out of time, but uh, 
Yes, aid coordination, and I don't know if you've written about it, but I have, and uh, uh, my, my view, which I think I gave at the previous public uh, meeting, so it's nothing new, is that the World Bank really needs to get involved in this, uh, because uh, it's not, the UN system is not equipped to do it, and the kind of uh, back and forth between different UN agencies, those who have funding and those who are supposed to coordinate are weak and the ones who have funding are strong and, and it's not a very good model. So I would just repeat my last time public plea that the World Bank could get more involved and, and perhaps the IMF at least, particularly with the central bank. Um, I'm afraid we're really running out of time. We have some questions from the audience, so I would ask uh, Wahid to answer one of them and, uh, and uh, Sylvia another. So, uh, Thank you. And a very interesting question is uh, from Sabram. Um, the question is, which non-agriculture sector do you see growing since 2021, if um, any other sect services or non, uh, or manufacturing? 40 seconds. Now, we need to take all sectors in the broader context. And that comes to uh, the point which uh, Bill actually mentioned about the, you know, um, aid was necessary, but aid has some negatives as well. And the way the aid is delivered in Afghanistan has consequences. For example, cash shipments in Afghanistan has helped country, helped UN agencies in terms of delivering their mandate but it has created an overvalued exchange rate. The exchange rate which does not reflect the fundamental economic realities of Afghanistan. And we know all know that if exchange rate is overvalued, you basically you are sucking life out of your domestic manufacturing sector. Basically you are supporting your non-tradable sectors and the imports will be sort of indirectly subsidized and exports will be penalized. So I think at the moment, what we have seen for the last two years, there is a decline in all sectors, 2021, 2022. And Taliban, for some reason, they think that exchange rate appreciation is a positive thing. They keep tweeting about it all without understanding that this is a bad for the economy. And as Bill mentioned, that, of course, the one way is to just, they need to procure dollars from the market. For that to happen, they need to have local currency. And that's where some challenges are because they can't print it domestically. But that's where we are. We don't have instruments at the moment. And probably the bigger challenge is the authorities in Afghanistan doesn't understand what, that, what they need to do. Thank you very much. I think without my having shown you the question, you did uh, touch on the human, uh, UN cash shipments, which are a really bad approach from anything except the most uh, short-term perspective as a sort of emergency in late 2001, uh, 21 and, 20, and early 22. And uh, it's a bit frustrating to see that there, there, there are plenty of ideas out there, but nothing seems to be happening. And again, it may be this inertia of the, of the humanitarian aid system. So thank you. You answered two questions uh, in response to one. So Sylvia, there's a question I think that's directed at you. Um, so it's a, it's a question on uh, um, women employment and the loss of jobs of, of, of women. 
Um, so actually, we do have an increase of female employment. I think we would need to get better data in terms of the quality of, of jobs. We do know that women uh, are not working for the government anymore, meaning they are not showing up to the office, but apparently they are still being paid. Um, so I think there is the issue of uh, uh, jobs not just as a, as a paycheck, but jobs as a way for women to uh, be part of, of the society to realize themselves and their, and their potential. So it's a, it's a huge agenda in terms of understanding better what is, what is happening on the ground. What we see in the data that there are more women working just because they need to support their families. Um, there is a, a, an issue for the like educated eye-hand professional women, whether they have been able to maintain the quality of the jobs that they had before. Um, still, women are working uh, uh, in the delivery of aid, so that has been one of the, of the red line of the international community for their engagement in Afghanistan to make sure that aid is delivered for women, also by women. So that is something that is really at the center of the engagement currently. Over. No, thank you very much, and uh, I think we've all said and I think we all feel that uh, these policies toward uh, female education and women's employment are, are just disastrous for Afghanistan, and uh, there's no question about that. The, the, the question is, will the Taliban do anything about it, which I think is, is another subject. Um, I, Paul and Nahid, I don't know if you have any final 30-second thoughts. We're running close to time. I realize we didn't get to all the questions, but I hope we answered some of them. Uh, and if there is a, a minute at the end, I'll try to address a couple that we that we the panelists didn't get to hear. So, uh, Paul, and then Nahid, and you're okay. Yeah, in 30 seconds, I just want to kind of respond to something that both Nahid and Sylvia mentioned, and that's about. Um, employment opportunities for women, particularly, Sylvia, as you mentioned, the educated and highly skilled class. But I would also expand it beyond just women. There's a whole generation of people, tech-savvy, um, this kind of entrepreneurial class that came of age in the last 20 years. And we don't see what they're doing now. I mean, obviously, some of them have fled the country. A lot of them have fled the country. We don't see what they're doing now, but they are doing something. And um, maybe some of what they're doing, they don't want it to be seen. Maybe it's safer not to have it seen. But you know, you've had some incredibly creative enterprises over the last 20 years. I mean, Afghan twists on um, adaptations, like there was something called um, Mr. Kachulu potato chips, and Boober, which was a um, kind of a uh, Uber um, look-alike or act-alike. And so some of these people are still there, and I think they're looking for opportunities to plug into support, and there's obviously the, the market demand and all that question. It won't create um, jobs at scale. I mean, we usually think about public works projects and cash for work. It won't create jobs at scale, but it will create some jobs, and it will also keep this class of people engaged and growing. And, and I think that's something that we, um, particularly for girls and women, I think that has a great possibility. Thank you. I think we're running out of time, but Nahid, if you have a 30-second intervention. 30-second one on aid efficiency. You need to share their data. You don't want to agencies to go and provide support to one village. Please, I'm, 
I think it's sad that we are talking right after 20 years of aid experience in Afghanistan. Second, uh, maybe we can do more about managing remittances. I think that's one of the biggest areas that could be looked into as alternative to aid that is decreasing. Um, and that's up for policy, further policy discussion. Thank you. Couldn't agree more, and uh, we could have a whole separate session on, on aid management. How it was not, there are many problems before 2021. It's not clear that uh, the, the commun aid community has learned much from those. And it's different actors and different types of aid, but similar problems. Uh, you had a quick point, uh, Sylvia. Just a, just a quick point to reinforce what Paul just said. I think when we talk about gender, I think there is a whole issue of male youth. And, and how the, we see unemployment for male, male youth is very, very high with the issue of secondary education for youth. That will also affect women. So I think we need to also have a, like a broader uh, thinking about the current status of gender issues in, in the country. Over. Thank you. Uh, and I really appreciate everybody's patience and the time. Uh, there's one question about minerals and about the Kush Tekpe uh, uh, water project in the north. The short answer, which I'll give as, as the moderator, is minerals no, Kush Tepe is a good project and uh, is, will help uh, Afghan farmers. Uh, and then there's one more about corruption. We didn't really deal with that, and I don't think the two reports are, are focused on those issues, but uh, uh, s simply the, uh, the much reduced flows of money obviously must have re reduced corruption. And the Taliban, it's part of their mantra and it's, it's clear on, on the trade side, they've really cracked down on the, on the customs and trade. In other areas, there are issues and there's probably a lot of petty corruption and extortion. But uh, overall, I mean, I th and the last point I would make is just give them time. They'll be more corrupt over time too, right? I mean, and uh, uh, I think that's something to watch out about. It's something we didn't deal with when we came in in 2002 and it came back to bite us because the level of corruption left over from the 1990s was very low because there was no money and the Taliban didn't care. They were fighting a civil war. So there was really, uh, uh, and, and I think early attention to corruption is good and maybe that's another message to the Taliban to watch out. Thank you very much to the panel. Thank you for the audience for being patient. Uh, maybe we can just give a round of applause to the panel. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Mm -hmm.